weeknights from 6 on 2FM. Well, a big thanks to the two Johnnies for driving us through the afternoon. It is Tuesday, October 10th, and you're listening to Game On. Coming up between now and 7pm, RTE journalist Dave Kelly will have reaction in neon as Ireland and the UK are formally announced as Euro 2028 hosts. They surely are, and sticking with football, Paul Corrie and Mark Langdon will be joining us to round up that positive news for Irish football and all the latest stories from across Europe. We'll also be chatting to Murray Kinsella in France with the latest from the Ireland camp as we edge closer to that crucial clash with the All Blacks. As always, we'll also wrap up all of today's latest sports news headlines, all that and more here on Game on 2FM, coming your way in approximately 30 seconds. So 30 seconds, dramatic pause for the crack, Ruby. Who needs an ad break? Who needs? We'll just, I, we'll just I, give I, our I, listeners what I, they want. I, I, I was told before I ever started in broadcasting that <laughs> silence creates drama and you've taken it to a new level. Exactly. Know? So therefore, if you want to have your say in this drama, drop us a text 51552 or post a message to Game On 2FM, the social media platform now known as X. Game On on 2FM. We just say silent, Ruby. We just say silent. Well, you, you go on. I listened to the ad yesterday. It was for VHI. You better give it a mention anyway. Yeah, yeah. No, we will. We will. Sorry we to will. VHI for not being able to play your ad. We Do will you know get what? it in somewhere along We will. Way. We'll fit it in. But first, we'll rattle through our news headlines and then we'll fit it in, Ruby. Because firstly, Republic of Ireland defender Kieran Clark has penned a one-year deal with championship side Stoke City. The 34-year-old's contract expired at Newcastle last June and he's been hunting for a new club since. Clark, who has 36 caps for Ireland, could feature in the Potters' next league game against Sunderland on Saturday week alongside fellow Irish internationals Enda Stevens and Mark Travers. Meanwhile, Eden Hazard has announced his retirement from football at the age of 32. More on that very shortly in our football chat with Paul Corey and Mark Langdon. And Ruby, a bit of racing news. The British Horse Racing Authority has released its long-awaited 2024 fixture list. The introduction of Premier Race Days had already been announced, of course, while there has also been an effort to significantly boost Sunday racing. There will be 170 Premier Race Day cards in 2024 across 38 courses. In comparison, only 100 15 meetings this year would have met the uh, criteria which the BHA, belie- BHA believes shows the willingness of courses to improve the, the product they are offering so that's the, the British side of things is there an Irish angle on this? How will this affect uh, the, Irish the, races? There could be, there could be Shane, or there was the potential to be, How will it happen now or not? Only time will tell with the new gambling advertisement legislation due to come into, into place but there is still only a certain amount of quality racing to go around in the UK so that's been premierised on a Saturday and they're trying to make the Sunday stuff slightly better but that would have helped Ireland because a lot of our premier racing is on Ireland and therefore the Irish racing would have been taken by the terrestrial UK channels ITV in particular Mm. and that would have showcased Irish racing at a higher level now what happens around gambling advertising which pays for a lot of the terrestrial television especially in the UK only time will tell but there was the potential there with better Sunday racing coming in in the UK to take the Irish stuff and show the Irish race into a much broader English audience, but only time will tell. Only time will tell indeed. Okay, we are going to chat soccer in 30 seconds time, Ruby. No, it just doesn't want to work. VHI, when you switch to VHI, you will get great deals. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it myself. I'm, I'm all for VHI. We'll get there eventually. It's Let's really chat soccer. as well as VAR, isn't it? VAR, VHI, yeah. Whatever about three... 
three-letter organisations. Well, speaking of three-letter organisations, the FAI, there has been good news for um, the FAI because uh, Ireland will host a major international football tournament for the first time after UEFA officially approved the Republic of Ireland, Northern Ireland, England, Scotland and Wales as Euro 2028 co-hosts at a ceremony in Neon, Switzerland today and a little bit uh, earlier before we came on air and hopefully this does play. Dave Kelly and I were having a chat. He is in Neon, uh, Switzerland and I asked Dave of the news today and, and what else has come from this ceremony that has announced Ireland in the UK as Euro 2028 co-hosts. Well, as you say, Shane, it had been flagged for some while, hadn't it, that mm. uh, this bid was going to be successful and uh, all the more so after Turkey officially withdrew their bid last week. So in the end, this was an unopposed bid. Mm. Um, and the, the as I said, the uh, confirmation really was just being um, uh, ratified really uh, this morning. But uh, I know certainly as in terms of uh, a good news story for the FAI, it, it certainly is that. Um, in terms of what it will mean for the amount of games that we'll see in Dublin's Aviva Stadium in Euro 2028, no official word on that yet, but certainly from uh, all the reports we're getting, the suggestions we're getting is that the Aviva Stadium will stage six games in total in the summer of 2028. That will most likely be four group games, one game in the last 16 and one quarter final. Caseman Park, the second venue on the island of Ireland, likely to get five games. We understand, of course, that the yet-to-be-redeveloped mm. uh, Caseman Park, um, we understand that uh, finally... Uh, work is going to commence on the redevelopment of the Belfast venue next year and um, what we're hearing is it will be completed uh, in uh, 26, maybe late 26, early 27. So um, in terms of the uh, overall bid, uh, there will be 10 venues in total and um, six in England, uh, one in Wales, one in Scotland, one Northern Ireland and uh, obviously one in the Republic of Ireland. Well, that certainly is um, good news. You mentioned the games in Dublin, so hopefully that will involve the Republic of Ireland. Now, it did emerge yesterday that England have requested to go through the, the qualification process because the FA are, are keen to, to keep the team competitive in the run-up to the finals. Now, there hasn't been, as far as I'm aware, they have no official word on, on host nations getting buys or, or anything to that effect as of yet. No, but the one thing we definitely know, and this is completely understandable, is that five co-hosts doesn't mean five automatic place, mm. places in the tournament as hosts. So there is, there's, there's no scenario where the, the five teams will be uh, guaranteed a place in the uh, European Championship in 2028. I can completely understand England saying what they are saying because, you know, not playing competitive games is not a good thing. Um, and we know England are going to qualify um, through the, the, the group stage when mm. it comes around. So I can completely understand that from the English point of view. From a Republic of Ireland point of view, obviously, um, it's, it's a very different scenario. Um, I mean, we're, we're facing into a European Championship next year, a 24-team European Championship, which at this stage looks highly unlikely the Republic of Ireland are going to be there. So um, their particular uh, scenario is very different. What we're hearing is that all five are likely to compete in the normal format in the European Championship qualifiers. And then UEFA will potentially hold back to almost, you call them safety net or wild card positions for teams that uh, haven't 
qualified automatically. Um, but again, how that will actually work, we don't know yet, and we may not know for some time. But certainly UEFA will be keen to have all five nations there. I mean, obviously it would be somewhat flat, wouldn't it, if, if come, come the summer of 28 when there's games at the Aviva Stadium and they're not involving the Republic of Ireland or games at Casement and not involving Northern Ireland and, and or whatever. So in terms of, from a UEFA point of view, you can understand that they obviously want the teams there, but they there's no way that they could give five uh, places in a 24-team tournament to the uh, co-hosts. Yeah, perhaps UEFA relying on a couple of teams getting their uh, true qualification and then we might have the, the wild cards. Um, overall, though, like as I said, Dave, it, it is a positive story. But how much of a positive story? You know, the FEI are kind of saying that, listen, it's it's the world's third largest sporting event, according to the FEI. They'll have a 6.2 million euro legacy fund that is, is being ring-fenced for Ireland from an overall um, fund that all, all host nations will get. And it could act as a catalyst for, for future facility uh, investment. You do have to remember, though, this is kind of a peak year in debt repayment for, for the FEI. But across the board, it's positive soundings coming from the FEI. Yes, that has to be regarded as a good day for the FAI. I know we're going to hear from Johnson Hill shortly and um, one of the questions I put to him was that there will be sceptics out there who will feel that maybe this will be a distraction for the association and, you know, understandably he clearly rejected that and uh, said that he knows that there are plenty of challenges within the FAI and that they will, um, you know, uh, not be, be found wanting in terms of taking the eye off the ball or whatever in regard to those challenges. But, it has to be a, a positive thing for Irish football. Of course, there were due to be games at uh, Euro 2020. Um, those games obviously were moved away because of uh, ongoing issues with uh, stadium capacity uh, regarding uh, COVID. Um, so it will be the first time that you know a, a tournament of this magnitude is being played in Ireland. And um, I think you know the vast majority vast majority of people will regard it as a, as a good day and for, for the FAI as well. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned uh, your interview with Jonathan Hill. We can actually hear that now. Here is FAI CEO Jonathan Hill speaking to Dave Kelly. Jonathan, I suppose it's the worst kept secret in uh, European football, but... Uh your initial reaction to the confirmation of today's news? Well, look, obviously, it's very positive news for um, Irish football and for the FAI as well. Um, uh, we've worked incredibly hard, actually, over the last three years to get us to a point whereby our bid would be the winning bid. So I'm pleased for all the people who've worked uh, within the FAI team, but also our, our partners in government, um, with the uh, council and with the Aviva Stadium as well. And most of all, for our FAI staff and for our fans, um, who will have the chance to see some of the best football in the world uh, with the third largest sporting event in the world taking place in Ireland, which I think is something to celebrate. We've heard the word legacy being used in relation to Ireland's station this tournament. In real terms, what does that mean? Well, I think really the hard work starts today, in all honesty, in relation to legacy. Legacy is something that most people assume happens after the event has happened. Um, but for us, we're going to be working very hard now as to, as to what our legacy will be from the event. And that starts from now. So we will use this as a catalyst to talk to government in particular in relation to our facility infrastructure and, and vision. 
Um, we want to see better facilities across the grassroots, across the League of Ireland, and indeed for our international teams as well. So we see this as the start of the journey, if you like, and there's another five years before the tournament itself happens, uh, but we'll be, we'll be working really hard to make sure that um, we will have a positive legacy from hosting the event. And what would you say to those sceptics who would say that this perhaps could be a distraction to the FAI? No, I, look, I, 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 we, we know via our own strategy um, for through to 2025 what our key objectives are. One of those was to host international tournaments. Um, so we've ticked one of those boxes today in relation to um, Euro 2028. We're already hosting um, the UEFA Europa League final in Dublin um, next year. So I think that's a really important moment for Irish football and for the FAI in relation to its history within European football. So... Um, I don't think this means that we will stop concentrating on all the other many things that we have to do, and we know that we have lots of things to do, and there's a challenge to do that. Um, but we're very ready for those challenges, and we see this as a really positive opportunity for us to build on. In terms of the five co-hosts, obviously five co-hosts won't be getting automatic qualification. When can we expect some more clarity on that? Well, we know, we know that's a question that everyone will be asking, asking and it's actually um, one for UEFA to consider. We put forward um, a proposal as part of uh, the overall bid. Um, look, we're really hopeful from a sporting perspective that obviously we will qualify directly for the tournament as one of the 24 teams. Um, but it's up to UEFA to work out how they uh, will approach the two automatic slots, if you like, for the 24 teams who will qualify. But... Um, We'll await and see what UEFA have to say in relation to that. And are we looking at most likely a minimum of six games at the Aviva? Absolutely. That's the, um, that's the proposal we put forward. So um, four group games um, and a last six game and a quarter final. I think the really exciting thing is that if the team does qualify, and obviously we're very hopeful, as I say, that we will do automatically, that we will be playing all of our games in our national stadium at the Aviva Stadium in Dublin. And I think that's really exciting for not just the current crop of players who are looking forward now to um, taking part in Euro 2028, but also obviously for all of our fans and for all of those kids who are dreaming about being one of those players as well. So um, that, will be, um, that will be one of the real benefits from, uh, from today. I know it's not part of the FAI's bit, but are there any concerns with regard to the yet-to-be-redeveloped Casement Park? Uh, no, look, we, we're, we're very supportive of our colleagues at the Irish Football Association and um, we understand they have full backing from the UK government in relation to the build. So uh, anything that we can do to help and support that we'll want to do, but we will, we'll leave that to the IFA. Euro 2028 seems like a long way away, but I, presumably the, the work starts quite soon. No, absolutely. We, and we've had a very small team of people working very hard on the bid. Um, we'll now become part of a, a wider company, in, in effect, that will deliver the tournament itself. So, um, yeah, we have the, uh, the, the Europa League final, as I mentioned earlier, um, in, in May 2024 to deliver safely and well. And I think that will show you for and actually the watching world um, as to how good uh, we, the FAI, can be in delivering those types of events. But most importantly, how how good Ireland is as a host um, for those types of world-class events. And finally, is it possible to give us a sense of what Euro 2028 will actually look like when those games are being played in Dublin? Well, look, let's hope the sun shines, first of all. Um, it's Obviously, it's a summer tournament. Um, look, I think you've seen in relation to um, the crowds that we've been getting 
not just for the men's national team but also the uh, the women's national team recently in the Aviva that um, we will hopefully have a sea of green um, and some very passionate and knowledgeable football fans and uh, I don't think there'll be anybody coming to the UK and Ireland for Euro 2028 who won't want to have a little bit of Ireland as part of the experience uh, so I think it will be fantastic. I have just Googled God knows how many different polls and seminars and I can't find the Euros in the top 10 of world sporting events, let alone the top three. But anyhow, how is it never will let that one go? Paul Curry is an invite, our only chance of getting there. 2028 is a long, long way away. Can you see enough future in our underage talent to think that we will get there without just being let in? Very good question. I wonder, will we, will we be let in first and foremost? I was just talking to Shane off air there. If you think back on the last two competitions, you would imagine that England would qualify. Last competition, both Wales and Scotland qualified. You would imagine that would leave two free spots in the Euros before that, ourselves, Wales and Scotland, or, or, and Northern Ireland all qualified. So you would imagine that we will find some way into the tournament, Ruby. But to your question, I think when you look at the squad now and you think of the younger players that have come through in the recent years, the likes of Evan Ferguson, Aaron Connolly, uh, Malumbi, Jason Knight, centre-halves, Darrow Shea, Amabamadeli, they are of a perfect age profile now looking towards... 2028 and yes sport is very unpredictable we don't know what sort of path those careers are going to take but if they do kind of continue on that upward trajectory you're looking at players in and around being that kind of 27 28 age mark which is I guess that perfect sort of prime age for a number of our younger players so you would like to think we would have a decent squad I think at underage level we're making good strides in regards to the development of our talent and getting better infrastructure around those players and better opportunities to, to make their way into first teams whether that be in League of Ireland or across in the UK or in mainland Europe so yeah I, I think we can be hopeful I think it's it's a good day for the FAI I think it was important that they had something sort of positive to to get behind given the kind of last kind of couple of months particularly with the men's side and how results have gone but there's a long long way to go and you would just hope could you imagine in 2028 if we're playing games here and we're not involved it would be such an anti-climax wouldn't it don't so, mention it. Don't yeah, mention it. I, yeah. don't even, I don't even want to think about it. It was actually almost like an anti-climax in itself, wasn't it? Like normally these competitions and when they're handing out the award of who's who's going to host it, there tends yeah. to be like three or four different people in the Nations running. It was just, yeah, just and ourselves. Then, it was yeah. a foregone conclusion. There was no champagne popped in no, neon. There wasn't, but we, we, you would, we need to be involved in that competition. Absolutely. Mark Langdon joins us as well. Um, I suppose there are concerns here that Ireland perhaps won't be getting there um, through qualification. So these possible safety net or wildcard positions are being mooted by UEFA. Are there similar concerns in Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, would you suspect? I'm, I'm not even going to ask if they're in England because that's they're not. They're <laughs> well, not. no. I'm, I mean, uh, the, the story in England was that the Football Association um, actually would prefer it if England had qualification games to prepare them in the best possible way for the tournament, um, which is maybe kind of a bit too forward-thinking, a bit arrogant. But, um, you know, I, I, you, you would imagine that England would be OK qualifying. I mean, Scotland at the moment... I mean, they're playing really well um, and it doesn't look like it's an ageing team and they're getting more and more players in the Premier League. So um, I, I would have thought they would be OK. Um, in terms of yourselves, Northern Ireland and, and Wales, I think a lot depends on the group. I mean, you know, Ireland have obviously not been picking up very many results lately, but you are in a group with Netherlands and France. That mm. is difficult. And even kind of the next team down, Greece, are not, you know, that that's not a gimme game um, either. So I, I think from Ireland's point of view, every match is massively important because you need to get 
as high up those seedings as you possibly can because the more games you lose or don't win, the further down the seedings you go, the harder the groups are, and then it's a vicious circle because you just win fewer points and you end up just you know on, on, on this downward spiral. So um, even if you don't qualify for um, this Euros, which is obviously not going to happen, I still think the games are important to try to get that coefficient up. Um, I suspect that UEFA will you know, would want the teams that are hosting to be in the tournament. So hopefully they can come to um, a satisfactory rule where uh, you know, maybe there are two wild cards and whoever doesn't qualify, you know, could get a backdoor entry because it, you, you, you want the host to be involved. Um, you know, if you've got six group games and Ireland are not playing in those, I mean, it, it's not going to be the same tournament. So um, I, I, I'm pretty sure UEFA will understand that and do all they can, um, you know, albeit that there will have to be sort of sporting qualification to, to, to try to help those um, teams sort of get there. Between the Nations League, the qualifiers, and a backdoor entry, <laughs> surely we have to get into this competition. Uh, what I want to know is if England, like, they want to go through qualification. If they don't qualify, like, sorry, lads, there's no wild card. There's no safety. <laughs> You've made your bed. Right? If, if, you, if you go through the qualification process, shin A. Shin A. Uh. <laughs> that would be it. Would, oh, it would be funny. Another way, Shane. There's funny. always another way. <laughs> there is. There is. There is. Um, okay. Well, speaking of one of the Irish youngsters who is in the spotlight at the moment, Evan Ferguson. Of course, there is a small matter of Ireland playing Greece in Euro 2024 qualifier uh, this Friday. Uh, match you can, of course, hear live commentary of uh, on an extended game on here on 2FM. And Evan Ferguson was on media duty today, speaking about the media hype. There's a lot that goes on in the press and stuff and I think it's all just talk. Like there's nothing I can really control about any of that so it won't let it affect me if I can't control it. I think just not trying to pay too much attention to it. Like obviously if you go on your phone you're gonna see stuff, the positive and the negative. So you're just you're gonna see it everywhere, you know what I mean? Just try not to to concentrate on it. Like we've we've games coming thick and fast so it's hard to, to concentrate on stuff when when you've got games coming every every three or four days. So we are patiently waiting for the big one, Ireland, Greece, this Friday. Many listeners are patiently waiting for some good news for VHI as well. Ruby, we're going to take a short ad break and then be chatting more football. Game on on 2FM. Now you are very welcome back to Game On myself Shane Dawson Ruby Walsh Mark Langdon and Paul Corey as we chat football so we were chatting about UEFA Euro 2028 coming to Ireland and the UK but uh, one of the news stories Paul Corey that I mentioned in the news headlines that was former Chelsea winger Eden Hazard has announced his retirement at the age of 32 Hazard scored 110 goals and 352 appearances for the London club after joining from Lille in 2012 and won two Premier League titles at Stamford Bridge before moving to Real Madrid in 2019 I know he was one of your uh, I was going to say all time favourites perhaps is that going a bit too far Paul he was he was a player you admired yeah absolutely Shane I think any time you went and watched Chelsea Sanford Bridge Eden Hazard was an absolute joy to watch and I think for anybody who follows the Premier League those years while he was at Chelsea he was an absolute standout performer Shane just one of those type players who could produce something out of nothing at the swivel of the hips and that explosion off 
kind of three, four, five yards to get away from players. If you think back even to just some of his goals, like I was, I was reminiscing today looking at highlights of him and if you remember the goal against Arsenal where he almost retired Coquelin and Koscielny in the one move, yeah. picked it on a halfway line and just left them for dead. And then the other one was the Tottenham goal where Leicester and Tottenham were, were vying for the Premier League, picked up the ball on the halfway line and it just looks like there's nothing on. He's just that moment of magic to just produce something. So it's, it's a bit sad, I find, you know, 32 years of age. Realistically, he hasn't played much football since he went to Real Madrid in 2019. But when you look back on his honours and what he's achieved, like he's won absolutely everything. The Europa League at Chelsea, Champions League at Real Madrid, Premier League, La Liga, FA Cup, Copa del Rey, and obviously had a really good career with Belgium as well. But just a player with oodles of talent. Um, there was a fellow, Sam Hutchinson, who played with me at Sheffield Wednesday, and he said he recalled the first day the Hazard came in training and they were looking at, they'd obviously spent good money on him but rocked up to the training pitch no laces tied boots hanging on kind of looked as if he was thrown together thinking what have we invested in here yeah. he said the second training started that he just absolutely lit it up mm. absolutely lit it up and just so much natural talent and you would say if you were to look at Hazard and where he fits in kind of in that Chelsea all time greats you would have to put him up there with Gianfranco Zola same sort really? of player oh, I think so I think so if you think of the titles that he won while he was at Chelsea as well do he does, does he have that cult hero status I, oh he does yeah. absolutely absolutely I think Terry and Lampard obviously have a great affiliation being British players playing with the London mm. club but I think as you know players who've come into the Premier League I think Hazard is on par with Zola and that's when you go over Sanford Bridge you can certainly feel that he was a tremendous player. We wish him a happy retirement. But another man in Spain who is also out of contract, Mark, is Jose Luis Melin Mel Dilibar, who Sevilla sacked on Sunday. Yeah, um, I mean, I think he he did a good job last season, firefighting. Really, they were in a relegation battle. He was a much travelled um, sort of uh, boss that had, had not managed at that kind of level before um, and w- was really brought in to make sure they stayed up did much more than that because um, of course Sevilla went on to win the Europa League and therefore qualify for the Champions League so um, I think he did his job the problem was he, he never felt probably big enough um, for Sevilla and as soon as they made a bad start he was always likely to go he's not the only problem at Sevilla they haven't got that much money they haven't got the stars that they used to have um, so yeah Mendilibar um, has gone um, but I'm, I'm not sure that there's, there is this kind of miracle worker out there that suddenly gets Sevilla up sort of fighting for the, the sort of top spots in Spain at the moment Well Sevilla mightn't have the stars but Barcelona certainly do teenager Lamine Yamal Mark became the youngest goalscorer in La Liga history as Barcelona fought back from two goals down to earn a point against Granada. He is just 16 years and 87 days old. Is this the, the next big thing? Yeah, I'm born in 2007. It is stupid, really, that you've got somebody that is breaking all the records in Spain. So he became the youngest ever player to play for Spain, the youngest player to ever score for Spain, and he's done the same um, uh, for now for Barcelona. Xavi absolutely adores him um, and, and thinks that he you know, fully deserves his spot in the team. Sort of wide forward um, that, yeah, I mean, he, he belongs. You can see that and he's already... I, I'm not sure if the Spanish national team thing was more a case of um, he had dual nationality. There was a suggestion maybe he could go and play for Morocco. Um, and so I don't know if Spain just moved to make sure um, that that wasn't a possibility. There's obviously a lot of pressure um, on his shoulders. I have seen some people say that they think it's 
not right for a 16-year-old maybe to have that much pressure put on them and to be playing at that level every week for Barcelona and for the Spanish national team. And he should be you know, allowed to develop a bit slower than that. Um, but uh, the, the, the talent is obvious. I mean, he's not like a Wayne Rooney um, built 16-year-old, if you remember when Rooney came in, more slight than that. And so I think there's maybe a danger of burnout and just, you know, the expectation on a 16-year-old the production line is absolutely ridiculous, isn't it? When you oh. look at it, like Pedri... Every level he's... Yeah, sorry, sorry. Sorry, you know, we lost there for a second, Mark. I was just saying the production line that they have in Barcelona is just becoming absolutely ridiculous. Um, you know, Gavi seems like a, an experienced player now and he's mm-hmm. 19 years of age. Even Pedri, the number of games that he's played with both Barcelona and Spain. Lamine Yamal, they've got Balde left back. It's almost coming full circle again to when Xavi, Iniesta, yes, Busquets, all these players coming through. It's an incredible production line they have. It's, it's a very they're well, very well set Alex up. Ferguson proved you can do things with kids so hey Barcelona <laughs> are following suit but Mark what about Jude Bellingham 10 goals 10 games he's not old either is he? I, I, I mean Jude Bellingham is just astonishing the start he has made in, in, in La Liga is unbelievable uh, he has been the best player in the league by an absolute distance he looks like he belongs at Real Madrid. He kind of owns kind of, you know, the, the rest of the team at the moment. They look to him to, to lead them. He, he he just bosses the Bernabeu. It's, um, you know, he's now in discussions really for Ballon d'Ors. Um, he's playing at that kind of level. Um, it, it's hard to, it's hard to describe really just how much of an impact he has made, but to have scored the amount of goals he has to have created as, as he has to have settled how quickly he has at Real Madrid the amount of players that go to Real Madrid and, and don't make it straight away Luka Modric struggled Eden Hazard who we were speaking about earlier could never get fit I mean Bellingham looks like he was sort of born to play for Real Madrid incredible um, start I, and I, I just don't know where the kind of his talent pool ends and sort of how good he could become um, as an England sort of um, national. It's exciting to imagine what he could do for for the national team um, over the next decade. Um, yeah, j- astonishing player. Do you think it suits him, Paul, playing like going from the Bundesliga to La Liga? And he's probably universally liked in England as well because he hasn't played for any of the, the big six or big eight or however many it is now. Oh, I, I think the moves that him and the party behind him have made have been superb you know the stepping stones that they've had to get to this point but I would agree with Mark I think the surprise and how easily and gradually he's taken to that Real Madrid Mm. team is is what is surprising most I just looking at his game I didn't realise how good he was kind of in that final third with goal involvements you know you see him particularly playing higher up he's actually almost playing like the higher of the three midfielders and getting involved in the final third and I think as he develops and as that relationship develops with Rodrigo and Vinicius you're going to see an absolute star come mm. come about because some of the balls that he's been playing even in, in the opening games and the goals that he scored massive moments like you're looking at a team who's now looking at a 20 year old to almost take this team to the next level they've obviously lost the likes of Benzema and Ronaldo in recent years be- Bellingham looks mm. like as if he's primed to step into that role there are plenty of stars to show in Spanish football but the older brigade are revi- making a revival in Italy Lukaku back at the weekend with a couple of goals but Jose's under a bit of pressure at Roma is he? Uh, yeah he is Ruby um, you know it's the old kind of third season syndrome um, for Mourinho where uh, it, it, the, the magic runs out and the patience wears thin with, with the style of play um, once you get um, into that first year um, the, the, the good news for him is you're right Lukaku scoring goals um, again at the weekend if he can keep him and Dybala fit then maybe Roma 
um, you know, could get back up and challenge for those Champions League spots. But at the moment, the football just hasn't been good enough. But you're right to say Lukaku's scoring goals. And um, at least he hasn't had to go in goal, unlike Olivier Giroud um, at the weekend. He was uh, had to go in goal for about 10 minutes for um, AC Milan for their trip uh, to, to, to Genoa. Um, and and mate, pulled off one. Absolutely fantastic. Well, not fantastic, but it was, it was a good save. Um, you know, not one you'd expect from your striker. Um, yeah, I think Lukaku's probably uh, much more happier in, in the opposition penalty box. But Giroud, very comfortable in his own penalty box making saves. I'm, I'm disgusted. You that now. Funny you say that, but I often <laughs> thought Lukaku might be better off in goal at times. <laughs> I, I was going to say I'm disgusted you mentioned that, Mark, about him pulling off a save because we had Alan Carley on yesterday saying about Asher goalkeepers, you know, they're just the lads <laughs> who can play football. I took... Grave offence to that. Grave offence. Um, okay, uh, it is all happening across Europe. Mark Langdon, for now, thank you uh, very much. Paul Corrie, thank you uh, very much. We're going to take a short break and then we're going to turn our attention to rugby uh, in the company of Murray Kinsler from the 42.ie, who was in France. Game on. Rugby. Welcome back to Game On, where I'm delighted to say we are joined by Murray Kinsella of the 42, who has relocated to Paris from Tours as he follows the Irish rugby team. Murray, how is Paris and how are the vibes around the Irish camp? Bonsoir. It is uh, exciting to be here. And the mood around Ireland, I suppose, has been a little bit concerned early in the week with injury issues, which I'm sure we'll get into. But at the same time, they seem very confident and, and why shouldn't they be given what they've done in the past few years given what they've done against New Zealand and given what they've done at this World Cup so it's a little bit quieter at the moment but can't wait for that green army to get back in at the weekend it's been truly phenomenal the last few weekends and it really is the talk of this World Cup so loads of reasons to be really excited loads of reasons to be really excited you said it's a little quieter at the moment is there fatigue or any signs of it dragging on on the Irish team or, or, or is there pep in their step like Andy Farrell was hoping to get? I really think there is. They had a weekend off after the South Africa game which couldn't have come at a better time really given how physical that game was given the the height they had to get to emotionally to win that game against the, the reigning champions. They actually had three days off from camp and they were all able to go off on their own little holidays. Some of them stayed in Paris. Some of them went back to tour. A few others were, were dotted around places like La Rochelle and, and other spots in France. They asked them all to stay in France, but they got a breather. They were with their families, who've been a really big part of this, actually. The RFU have helped to get the families over for each weekend and made sure they had match tickets, and that's taken what used to be quite a bit of stress for the players away, and that's that's typical of Andy Farrell. He's very good at actually encouraging a squad to switch off when they're not training. When they're on, they're really on, but they're they're very good at having those downtimes as well. And they're a squad who get on very well together as well. So there's absolutely no sense that they're they're dragging on at all. They're really excited about the opportunity, which is the the big quarterfinal against New Zealand. This is one that we've been building towards, I suppose, for a few years. And, and that's how the, the Ireland team have viewed it. Everything they've done over the last couple of years really has been about this end goal, which is which is winning the World Cup in, in their minds. But the, the next step is a, a really difficult one. And I certainly sense that there's energy and, and massive excitement within the group. Obviously, there was injury concerns over the weekend. Again, you looked, scroll through social media, wherever you look today, you see Mark Hansen sitting in the stand. James Ryan wasn't even there. What What is the latest news? News or, or are the rumours even on the street? 
So James Lowe obviously was another one who picked up an injury. It seems that he's improving a lot. He got a bad poke in the eye last weekend, but he was out training today and the, the sense is that he's going to be okay for the weekend. Hansen, as you say, we saw the pictures of him not training today. The understanding earlier on was that they're hoping he will train tomorrow because they're, they're back on the pitch tomorrow. It's their kind of big session of the week. And if he comes through that, then of course he's going to take his place for the weekend. He's so, such an important player and I think there is a bit of optimism around that. Ryan definitely looks like a big doubt. He went off to get a, a scan on, on his wrist injury and see a specialist, understanding that that actually was back in, in Dublin to to get that assessed. And I think the initial uh, you know feedback from that is positive. If they can make a semi final potentially he could come back into the mix. Um but he would be missed if he's if he's ruled out this weekend. Then you have Robbie Henshaw back running around a little bit. He's had a hamstring injury He's maybe going to come into contention this weekend. Uh, and Keith Earls was on the training pitch. He has a also has a hamstring um, concern over the last couple of days, but he looks like he's improving a fair bit. So on the whole, I think they've been a little bit optimistic. Obviously, it's not ideal to have these issues there in, in such a big week. But at this stage of a tournament, it's probably part and parcel of it. You're often going to have guys sitting out training and, and managing their workloads at this stage. And really, they've had a fair bit of, of injury luck. And the other side of it is that regardless of what happens, they've shown Ireland that they're very good at handling setbacks, handling adversity, as they call it, and actually rolling with the punches. And guys tend to slot in very well. So, you know, if there was the case where Hansen does pull up and it's not going to work out, Keith Earls would be expected to step in. And he's done so much in an Ireland jersey. You know, it's beyond doubt that he's a brilliant Ireland international. And we've seen loads of instances of it. Even last weekend, Ruby, when you think about... The, the finishing wings in the match. Gary Ringrose and Jamison Gibson Park were on the wings for the, the entire second half and they did a, a really good job. You would have thought they were wings themselves because they know the role. They've accounted for these possibilities and it's something that's maybe missed a little bit with, with Ireland because Andy Farrell is he is a great vibes man but he's also a highly detail, detailed head coach and, and they've considered all this. So while it would be amazing for them to have all their key guys, particularly Lowe and, and Hansen, they've shown they can adjust before. When you watched at the weekend, is Gary Ringrose now Brian O'Driscoll? He has that. He has that bit of air about him. I'm loving the real confidence and conviction in his play these days. He's playing with a a nice bit of bite. If you watch him in defence, he'll often just drive that shoulder into a, a, attacking players. He's really good read of the the game as O'Driscoll did as well. And in terms of his attack, he's such an intelligent player. They're probably a little bit different in terms of O'Driscoll just did these amazing X-Factor things. He had a brilliant offloading game. He could absolutely tilt a game on its head. And it was really obvious to everyone. But Ringrose's contributions tend to be a little bit more subtle, I I think. And he's a real glue figure. He can absolutely make the line breaks. We saw it last weekend and he's brilliant when he's in behind the line but often he'll be the one who puts a, a player away or or who decoy runs a decoy line and draws a defender away so lots of the work he does is you know it's something that you really appreciate if you watch the game back but wow he's playing at a, an incredibly world-class level at the moment probably the best outside center in the the competition and that's i suppose one of the advantages that Ireland have now is the confidence they have that their players are as good as if not better than anyone you know long gone are the days where we're just talking about the All Blacks players in this in this fixture actually now Ireland have Hugo Keane and Caelan Doris Gary Ringrose still Johnny Sexton who are all 
and I'm missing a few there, all in the conversation for for best in their position in the world. But you're you're dead right. Ring Rose absolutely going to those levels now. So, Murray, we have some of the best players in the world all vying for a starting 15. Given the injury issues that Ireland are contending with as well, is it a surprise then that Andy Farrell's actually going to name his match day squad tomorrow afternoon? It was a little bit of a surprise when I heard, to be honest, because it's usually on a Thursday and you have that kind of routine when you're working in the media and you're expecting it there. Um, is, is it, it mind games? Uh, I, I don't think it is. I, I ch- obviously checked with Ireland and, and from their point of view, they say it's down to something as simple as Thursday is their rest day. Usually they would have had to travel over here in France on that rest day up from tour, which was their previous training base. And then they would have just done the media as soon as they arrived. And, you know, it would have been a, a day involved in that kind of bit of extra hassle from, from their point of view. But this time they do want to just have a full day off for the players really um, as I said, like Farrell's massive on on this kind of switching off, and, and they don't want to drag players in for a media day. So they're doing it tomorrow. That's the that's the line from the camp, and I don't I don't suspect anything untoward in that. In, in fact, the All Blacks are probably like getting the the team a, a day early. I think someone like Joe Schmidt, we know that he is big on opposition and, and player analysis, so it might actually lend itself to to that. But I think realistically you know the Ireland team barring those couple of injury doubts it will be very very settled and, and it kind of has been for for a while now so they've kind of they're, they're saying here's our hand let's see what you got uh, to the All Blacks So if James Ryan isn't in the squad who do you expect to be in it? Well it's a straight choice for, for that bench slot because we should say Ian Henderson came in and started really well in the second row last weekend. The, the line which had been a concern was really fixed up and he called that well. So that bench spot is, is either Ryan Baird or Joe McCarthy. Ryan Baird is more experienced. He's got 15 caps. He started in the second row in the Grand Slam clinching game against England earlier on this year and he's had some big games with Leinster as well. But he has been playing on the blindside flank in this current campaign so he's kind of shifted roles and McCarthy really is a, a bit of a, a coming force he's only 22 he's only got four caps but they are really big fans of of his physicality and his doggedness and his energy and and Farrell's mentioned him a few times during this campaign even though he only played that Romania game which which he did really well in actually in, in the kind of first choice selection otherwise he was uh, quite impressive and, and did really well in the preseason so there's a bit of a sense that maybe just maybe he might get a, a shot off the, the bench. But if you're selecting based on on the experience that a player has, it, it would probably be, be bared. You, you've got more certainty that he's been in those big high-profile games and that he has the, the I suppose, attitude to, to pull that off. Um, and, and then McCarthy will be the more explosive, explosive option, I guess. A fairly settled starting 15, and okay, we don't know with, with the injuries and how serious they are, but what are the other... Big calls for Andy Farrell and the management team. Is it a case of Jack Crowley or Ross Byrne and, and who is cover for, for the backs on the bench? Well, maybe the 23 shirt. And again, that comes down to injuries. If Henshaw is available, he takes that 23 shirt because we saw against South Africa just how big an impact he can have from there. And listen, he's got so much experience in Tess Roby. He's a brilliant player to call on. That's not to say that Stuart McCoskey didn't do a great job. I thought he was really outstanding coming off the bench. Having not played for quite a few weeks, you know, he was one of those guys who was waiting for his chance, waiting patiently, and he just seamlessly slotted in there. Beautiful pass for one of the, the Hugo Keenan tries. He did some outstanding defending in the, the second half as well. So they have real confidence in him. 
and even Jimmy O'Brien who hasn't played yet can c- cover a lot of bases but if it was Henshaw available I, th- I think it would be him the backup out half one really was a debate a few weeks ago but Crowley has just accelerated there and it's maybe gone a little bit under the radar I know it was only eight minutes at the end of the South Africa game but in times past I think Ireland might have left Johnny Sexton out there for just a little bit longer they have got faith in, in Crowley now and he's done really well I think off the bench in, in both games he obviously had a big stint last weekend because Johnny Sexton they were able to afford the luxury of taking him off after 45 minutes with the game done and dusted and I thought Crowley again largely did really well there were a couple of small bits there where you know one of, the, one of his chip kicks was very shallow and he would love to get that back but he had a beautiful assist for Gary Ringrose's try that kick under real pressure was was outstanding with the outside of the right boot it's really skillful and really composed and I think they like that about him even taking on the drop goal attempt against South Africa there was no penalty advantage playing there so it's a big call from an out half but he seems to be more than comfortable making those making those calls and, and he's really stepped up well given given that opportunity Do you think Andy Farrell and his team would have looked at the game last week and thought right if we do need to make if we're forced to make a change in that backfield Stuart McCluskey came in at 12 that pushed everybody out of position do you think he'd look and think ooh against New Zealand can we really have a scrum half on the wing a centre on the wing does it maybe bring Jimmy O'Brien more back into it because of his variety of positions that he can play over Stuart McCluskey, who is really a first centre, even though he was brilliant when he came on? I'd absolutely say they're having that conversation, or I've had that conversation themselves a few times. They they do try and consider all these things, and it was a bit of a freak one, really. I suppose both wings getting injured last time, and even the circumstances of Lowe's one was was very kind of unusual. So absolutely, they discussed those things. But as far as I understand, even Stuart McCluskey has run on the wing in training. And, and that's something they do. They, they, they factor that in. A number of them practice their line-out throwing, including the, the scrum halves. We know that Josh van der Fleer has actually done it really impressively as recently as the Six Nations against Scotland when he did a great job thrown into the line-out. And that wasn't by accident. They actually do practice these things and more. So even someone like Stuart McCluskey, who, as you rightly say, is just a, a pure out pure inside centre he's actually had a few reps on the wing and he's got an understanding of what that role entails and I think you saw that with Gibson Park in particular Ringrose has a small bit of history on the wing when he first broke through with Leinster and even with Ireland he's moved there a couple of times but Gibson Park seamlessly fit into that role and if you see for the the Dan Sheehan try the way he actually swings all the way from the right hand side of the pitch to the left having already made a carry up the right hand side and then he gives the scoring pass. It was actually very reminiscent of something that Mac Hansen or James Lowe would, would do. So that understanding of the different roles is is really a strength of Ireland's. And you actually see that even within their, their phase play attack all the time. Guys are in slightly different positions on slightly different occasions, but they all really understand it. And that also takes a bit of pressure off Johnny Sexton. He doesn't have to tell everyone every single thing they need to do because often they're already in the position he wants them to, to be in. Murray, this might seem like a stupid question, but is this the most complete Ireland team and most intelligent? And what I mean by intelligent is, suppose the the variety of skills that these players can do. Like you'll you'll know more than me from from covering the the sport. Kind of going back, I wouldn't have thought that that players could have fitted in so seamlessly in other positions. Is that just down to better coaching and more variety of coaching and just more detail for planning for for crisis situations, or or what do you put it down to? 
Well, it's a great, it's a great question because they are a very complete team, and I've done, I've fallen into the trap of just focusing on their attack there, but they do tick a lot of boxes. They're very physical, and it's something that they take great pride in. And Paul O'Connell mentioned it before the Springboks game because everyone ends up talking about how big and strong the Springboks are, which they absolutely are. But Ireland are, are as well. They've gone toe to toe with the Springboks twice now in the space of a year and, and come out on on top of both those games. And they, you, you saw last weekend, they physically dominated Scotland. I know that the focus goes on the tries that were brilliant in the passing, but actually a lot of it comes on the back of physically dominating the, the pack. So they've got that. They've got a good, intelligent kicking game as well. And then their defence is probably the jewel in their crown from their own point of view. They actually really love defending now, which uh, Simon Easterby has done a great job with, with that defensive side of the game. You saw it for the 18-phase kind of grandstand against Scotland last weekend where the longer it went on, the more comfortable Ireland actually looked until they finally got that turnover with one of the Caelan Doris uh, trademark counter-rucking efforts to to knock the ball loose. But there were a number of passages like that where they really enjoyed defending. So collectively, they've got that element of 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 taking all those boxes and you're, you're spot on in terms of the players as well. They are, they're really intelligent. They're really good decision makers. And that comes from practice. If you remember back when Andy Farrell took over, he kind of had a simple message that, you know, rugby is a straightforward game, put players in good positions and make good decisions. And you'll, you'll break down the, the defense. And one of his tasks was probably getting Irish players to fully believe in that. It's something Keith Earls was, was talking about yesterday, actually, and I remember Farrell saying at the start, why shouldn't Irish players think they're as skillful, as talented as anyone else, including probably teams like the All Blacks? And it wasn't how Irish players probably viewed themselves traditionally. It was more about physicality and heart and getting stuck in. But he and uh, Gary Keegan, who's the performance coach or mental skills specialist behind the scenes, they've really worked hard on getting the Irish players to to be confident and to see themselves as as the best. And that's what Earl's said yesterday. He said that's a, a big difference in this camp is that the Irish players, uh, deservedly and justifiably so, they think they're as good as anyone in the world. Well, sport is best when it's kept simple. Murray, one quick last question for you. How many All Blacks would make it into the Irish team? <laughs> <laughs> you should have told me you were going to ask me that. Oh, that's a tough one. I, if you could swap I think, one or two, yeah. is that... It would have been the other way around for years, but now it's this way around. It probably is. It probably leans towards Ireland, particularly up front, where you know when Ireland got that serious success over them last year, they did they did dominate. But then you look at the back line. Someone like Will Jordan is an absolute phenomenon on the right wing for for the All Blacks. He is going to be so dangerous. And Bowden Barrett at fifteen, something similar. He's been World Rugby Player of the Year twice, and that's a while ago now. But he's really dangerous with his pace and his kicking game. Um, even Jordy Barrett at twelve has been a real revelation for them. He was their fullback and, and moved up there. And that's a, a point to make. The Kiwis have changed a lot since last year. They've actually changed quite a lot of their personnel. They've changed their style of rugby. They've changed the coaching team around head coach Ian Foster and and lots of other bits. So that deeply disappointing. And I mean, it nearly cost Ian Foster his job. That, that series defeat to Ireland, it made them a better team. So what Ireland did last year, lots of it is relevant, but they're going to have to go to another level again this weekend. 
They most certainly are. Murray Kinsley, I hope you enjoy the weekend. Thanks a million for taking our call. I'm afraid, Shane Dawson, that is all we have time for. It is indeed. Big thanks to all of our listeners, all our contributors uh, this evening as well. Ruby, final word to you. Are Ireland going to beat New Zealand? Uh, I am extremely nervous. I am hoping beyond hope, but I am very nervous, Shane. Okay, well, on that note, Better De Silva is up next, so stay tuned to 2FM. But from all of the Game On team, it is. Bye for now.